The Giant. Thinkers. Giant Thinkers Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. Hello, wonderful listeners. Thank you for tuning in on the fifth episode of the Giant Thinkers podcast. Ram Castillo here, and I am pumped to launch this episode. If you've ever wanted to hear about what it's like to be a global chief creative officer at one of the world's best-known marketing communications agencies and one of the oldest, then this is the podcast episode you've been waiting for. Now, this is a little longer than my usual podcast, but it's all for good reason. Listen to the first half an hour of it and you'll know exactly what I mean. I cast a very wide net of questions and my guest goes deep with the answers. We talk about a whole bunch of topics, including being deliberate in career choice, the importance of selling your ideas, how to behave like a leader, the plus side of getting fired, the gift of creativity, grilled cheese sandwiches, advice on how to get noticed by an employer, feeding your curiosity, making the world better, and the list goes on and on. So it's with great pleasure to introduce to you the unicorn himself, the inspiring and grounded Matt Eastwood, global CCO of JWT. Matt Eastwood, thank you for joining us on the Giant Thinkers podcast. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Great. I know you're a busy man, so I appreciate your time. So first up, I've got an icebreaker question here. If you're stuck on a deserted island for a month and could only bring three items, let's say one survival item, one favorite food, and one luxury item, what would they be? Um, so it's actually a good question. I think my survival item uh, it would be uh, gin and vermouth so that I could make a martini. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> that's, that's what I need to survive. Um, my favorite food, probably, uh, to go with that martini, probably steak free. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and I think my luxury item would probably be a pillow. So I think ah. it would be pretty miserable on a desert island without a pillow. So, Mate, I, I expected nothing less. Good, good. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be drunk and full and comfortable. So yeah, the- precisely. <laughs> um, of course you can make your own fire and all that. That's easy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's, yeah, don't worry about being warm. That's it. <laughs> Now, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and how you grew up? So I uh, originally grew up in Perth in Western Australia and, um, uh, you know, four, one of four kids. Um, dad was an accountant and mom is, was a librarian. Um, so, you know, pretty regular household. Um, and I, uh, when I graduated from school, I went to university at Curtin University and studied graphic design. Um, and then at about uh, 23 years old, I moved to Sydney. So, um, you know, pretty uh, – I at this point in my life, I've actually lived uh, longer away from Perth than I ever lived in Perth, which is interesting. But, you know, it's still uh, – even though it's a long way away, it's still home for me. Yeah, perfect. Uh, were you, would, you, would you say you were quite active or how, how were you as a, as a child? Um, it's, when I uh, – as a young child uh, – my dad being an accountant did a lot of um uh he did the taxes and things for a lot of farms so uh our family would move around 
the country uh, probably almost every year or two he would get posted to a new country town where he would be the accountant for that town. Um, so we, we lived in like until I was about 13, we lived in maybe 11 different houses. Oh, good. So we would, we would constantly move. Um, but actually that was a really great way to grow up because, you know, you got to see the real Australia and you got to, uh, you know, we got to, uh, live on, you know, hang out on farms and ride motorbikes and do all sorts of crazy things. And so, uh, and, but you tended to, uh, cause you turn up to a new city, you tend to, you know, made us very close, uh, as kids with each other. So we would, you know, have to entertain each other and, uh, you know, find ways to kind of make our own fun. So, uh, you know, there was a really nice way to grow up and then eventually we moved to the city, um, and, uh, and then sort of spent the rest of the time, uh, uh, in one house for the next 30 years, I think mum and dad were there. So, um, you know, that's cool. crazy beginning and then a calmer end. Yeah. Bit of a farm boy, it seems to, yeah, to city yeah. life. Yeah. Now, um, what drives you to get up in the morning? I mean, I, I feel kind of blessed in that, uh, you know, I, I'm in a career that I have loved and wanted to be in since I was a teenager you know, I always wanted to be in, I knew I wanted to be in advertising and I'm doing it and I'm still doing it. And so I feel very, very lucky that, you know, I've had many friends who've had crises of, I don't know what I really want to do. And maybe I don't love this. And I really want to be a, you know, I want to write screenplays or I want to be a novelist, but I, I love being in kind of the communications industry. And so it, for me, it, there's always exciting challenges. Every day is different. Um, you know, some days uh, are long and busy and some days you're, uh, you, you know, you're working directly with clients. So it, I, I, I love the kind of variety that you get in advertising. Yeah. And um, speaking of advertising, where, where would you say your expertise lies? Um, I mean, it's interesting. I, like I, I trained as a graphic designer and uh, my, my degree is in graphic design. And, and so I sort of came through that way into, into sort of communications. I spent most of my career as a copywriter. Um, so, you know, I'm definitely, that's a skill I have, but I think in the end I've become, uh, you know, my expertise is probably in um, supporting and motivating and encouraging other creatives to be the best they can be. Um, and I, and I, and I think that's something I learned later in my career as I, uh, started to realize that the joy of helping other people be successful. So, um, you know, that's pretty much my job now as the global creative director. Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, what, what, what does your current role involve? And, um, a little part two question to, to that is, uh, do you get to create anything anymore? Or are you more so overseeing and unlocking I guess people's potential and managing teams, things like that. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely a bit of both. I mean, the job now is uh, is uh, setting, I guess, a creative direction for the company. You know, we have two hundred offices around the world and twelve thousand staff, so that's that's a big challenge to sort of give everyone a, a sort of a, a true north and a compass that they can head in that direction. Um, and I love that part of it, but I think at the same time. You know, I still get, I still want to be close, need to be close to clients. You know, I think you can't sort of get lost uh, in the kind of business of being in advertising. You've still got to be close to the product that we make. So, uh, you know, I, I spend a lot of time with 
uh, our global clients um, and, and, and I'm still able to influence the creation of work. I mean, I'm not sitting at my desk writing scripts. You know, that's probably, that's not what happens anymore, but I'm still uh, helping set creative direction on, you know, some of our biggest pieces of global business, which is, um, you know, still great fun because that's, that's what I love doing uh, when I'm not kind of uh, helping other people create. I love creating myself. So Yeah, yeah, because I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, delegating and strategic thinking of exactly what you said, um, you know, the direction of the, of the business creatively, but I'm sure there's, yeah. there's a lot more to it yeah. <laughs> in that role. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, and you know, I think the, the, the thing about having a global role like I do is, you know, uh, you, is that you're kind of always on. And I think you, you, you get to a point where you realize actually, uh, there's because there's always somewhere in the world that is awake <laughs> yeah. and, and is interested in your help or support. So, uh, you know, I think there's, there's, there's great variety in dealing with a client in India, for instance, uh, as opposed to a client in China or Europe. And, and I love that cultural part of it. I love dealing with and trying to, you know, helping to understand different regional um, nuances of how we speak on a global stage to, you know, clients like Nestle, which we have globally, but, but how do you communicate a common idea with a different, um, uh, with a different nuance in a different country. So that kind of stuff is interesting and intellectually challenging and, and fun to do. Yeah. Um, that's really cool. So I'm going to pull up a little quote here, I guess, um, by a British magazine campaign. So uh, this would have been about 10 years ago now. Uh, So British Magazine Campaign uh, have described you as one of the industry's unicorns, a young, proven talent capable of managing a large agency uh, creative department. So uh, this, like like I said, this would have been about a decade ago or more, but how did you get started in all this? Um, I mean, it's it's funny. I've been very... Uh, deliberate in my career choices, and and uh, and I think that's really kind of helped keep me moving forward. Um, you know, I I knew I wanted to be in uh, for some reason I don't even know how I knew I wanted to be in advertising from the time I was about thirteen. I I think I you know I probably learned about it um, from watching Darren Stevens on Bewitched. <laughs> it right, kind of yeah. looked like a fun business, and I was like, that looks interesting. Um, and at the time, there was no there wasn't actually an advertising course in Perth. So graphic design was the closest thing I could find to communications. Um, and I was always good at art and, and design. So I, I studied that. Um, and then I think I just, uh, I mean, I definitely know I've always had a, a tenaciousness to be successful. And, you know, I come from, you know, my, my parents are both very successful and I always felt that pressure to kind of live up to that, uh, you know, their example. Um, so, uh, I think once I'd been working as a creative for maybe probably eight or nine years, uh, I, I decided that I wanted to be a creative director and I wanted to have a bigger influence than just the work I was working on. And I actually really loved working and helping younger creatives, um, kind of find the best in themselves. So I made this decision of, I was going to turn myself into a creative director. So mm-hmm. I just started. I started behaving differently. I started dressing differently to everyone else in the creative department, which was funny because, you know, I, I would wear jackets to work when all the other 
copywriters and art directors were wearing jeans and T-shirts. And, right. And, you know, at first they give you a bit of a hard time and then they forget about it, so whatever. But uh, so I kind of got, and I used to get involved more and more with client meetings and I started to teach myself the skills that it would take to be a creative director. And then eventually at 29, uh, I got my first job as executive creative director of MNC Saatchi in Melbourne. Um, and, you know, the, I kept going from there. And I think the, 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 the great strength that I found that I never knew I had in myself was um, I, ha- I think I have a, a strong ability to kind of get on and speak with a business mind with clients, which uh, is, is partly what uh, Campaign Magazine was kind of talking about when I was living in London um, because in the past I think creative departments were often kept quite separate from clients and they were very much uh, in the back room producing the work and then account people would take it to the clients and try and sell it. Um, but I always knew that uh, I enjoyed that part of it. I enjoyed the selling part of it. So I became, I started to get better and better at dealing with clients and then suddenly you're leading pitches, et cetera. Um, and I think what, without realizing it, that's all the skills that it takes to run a big agency. Uh, you know, it's not just being a great creative, it's being a great um, salesperson, a great manager of people. Um, so I think, you know, by the time I was kind of early 30s, I'd gotten quite good at that. And then eventually when I moved to London, um, you know, London's quite a traditional uh, environment, or certainly was 10 years ago, um, and it was quite odd for uh, a, a creative leader to be somebody that spent a lot of time with clients. And I had, I'd been doing that all my career. So, uh, you know, they, that's why they called me a unicorn because it yeah. was, you know, there wasn't many people like that at the time. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a nice compliment, but it was, for me, it was just, uh, something I'd always been enjoyed and always been quite good at. Yeah. I always find it, uh, fascinating how, uh, in some agencies, uh, whether or not it's a capacity thing or a resource thing that account managers or, you know, the business managers would proceed to present work, uh, without a creative in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, and I just think that it's, it can be, uh, a disservice to some regard um, or to a large regard rather, because the creative thinker and doer, whether it be art director, copywriter, designer, whoever, they're, they're quite intimate with the work. So yeah, yeah. they would ne- the anyone else would never be able to articulate the ideas. That's so true. And I, you know, I think I got to a point in my career where, you know, you, I think you can either sit back and complain that someone else didn't sell your work. And when they come back and it's not, the client didn't like it, you kind of, can get angry with them and go, well, did you say this? And did you say that? Or, you know, why didn't you say this? Uh, or you can just start doing it yourself and get involved and take responsibility for that. And, and that's what I decided to do. I was like, I'd much rather blame myself for a client not buying a campaign or an idea or something than blame someone else. And at least then I know I'd given it every chance it had. Um, and, you know, I think part of the fun of, uh, I actually, I did a, um, course when I was maybe 26 in presentation skills and I really I found I really loved it I quite liked quite liked the showmanship of it and I quite you know I've, I've never been shy I quite like standing up in front of people and presenting and I think when I realized actually if I get good at this it's going to help me sell uh, the, the best ideas I have 
to clients and that's going to help my career. So I better get good at it. Um, so it was really, I mean, it was, I guess it's driven from a sort of a selfish reason in that I wanted to be successful. Uh, and I just realized that was something I had to be good at if I was going to be successful. So I sort of began to get better at it and put myself in the situation to do it as often as I could. And, and, you know, and actually I love doing it. Yeah. Yeah. You almost threw yourself in the deep end, but then it, yeah. it stuck with you and, and you enjoyed it. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, now looking back, were there any key learning moments or mistakes that, that tested you, challenged you and maybe pushed your limits? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Look, uh, I think, you know, I've had, uh, I've had some experiences in my life, uh, from a career point of view where, uh, I think I've made mistakes probably in the, uh, choice, like I, I won't say where, but in the choice of agency that I went to. And, you know, I remember one particular time going to an agency and realizing quite quickly that it wasn't the right place for me. It didn't feel like we, our, our agendas were aligned. Um, and it was, you know, it's pretty tough to be sort of two weeks into a new job and realize this is not for me. Um, but I said to myself, you know what, um, you gotta, you've just got to suck it up. Um, I didn't want to leave straight away because I didn't want to have three months on my CV. I want to, you know, I'm like, that's not a good look for someone who's in a leadership position. So I was like, you know what, you've got to hang it out, tough it out for two years. And then you, then I can decide what to do next. And I did that. And, um, and I remember walking away thinking, well, that was one of the worst experiences of my career. But, uh, but now, uh, you know, years later, and it wasn't even that long afterwards, I realized actually in that environment, I learned so many valuable lessons about how to behave as a leader, how to, uh, how not to treat people in, uh, who work for you, um, how to, uh, bring humanity to the, to the role of creative director. So it's funny, all the things that I hated about that job ended up becoming really valuable lessons for me and I, and have stayed with me ever since. And, and probably uh, more embedded in me because I was so kind of uh, affected by it than, than many other things. So it's funny, it definitely is a lesson that even the, the missteps and mistakes are very valuable in terms of life experience and being better at your job. Yeah, I think uh, you, you definitely uh, pulled, pulled the right approach there um, in terms of toughing it out and seeing, cause I think you don't really know. And, um, it's just like those people that try different health regimes, you know, they, yeah. they'll do it for two weeks and that's like, oh, not working, but it's not um, working. Well, I think, I think in order to test something and to truly immerse yourself, um, in, in judging whether it's going to be uh, beneficial or not, uh, you really have to stick it out for a long term. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And that's tough when it's not great. Yeah. Um, but I think you know, and, and it's very hard to see the, uh, the kind of the wood for the trees at the time. But I think that, you know, the thing I've discovered is, you know, any setbacks in your career, if you learn from them and if you, if you take the lesson out of it, then actually they're great. Uh, you know, I remember when I was, uh, I was 23 and I was working for Ogilvy, uh, in Perth and I'd been very successful and I'd won awards and actually that, the, this year I won writer of the year. And so, you know, I'd done a really good job. Uh, and I got fired, um, from Ogilvy and, you know, it really devastated me. And I was like, I don't know, I don't understand. I don't know what did I do wrong. And, 
Um, and it was a horrible moment. I, I remember I went home to my parents and, you know, I was in tears. It was just so upsetting. Um, and then about a month and a half later, the company announced that it was going bankrupt. And so everyone lost their job. And what I realised, uh, because I'd stayed in touch with uh, some of the management there, what I realised is that they actually let, they actually fired a bunch of people early on so that they would get their full salary um, and and be able to leave, as opposed to some of the others who ended up having to take the company to court to sue for the last money that was owed to them. So in a weird way, what was a horrible experience for me, it made me realise, you know what, it's just business and actually that sometimes there's a different meaning behind an action that takes place. Um, so, you know, I, I learnt from that horrible experience that, um, how to treat someone with humanity uh, when, you know, if you do have to let someone go and, um, and, and helping them understand that, you know, it's not the end of the road when, you know, even, even successful people get fired, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's funny, all of that stuff really kind of ends up making you the person you are, I think. Mm. Yeah. I'm glad you shared those stories in particular, that last one, I think uh, so often we forget um, there's a, there's a saying that I, uh, that I had read recently, which is um, successful people are praised in public for what they've been doing for years and years in private. And I think it's that, that privacy that encompasses all of that stuff, you know, the, yeah. the heartache, the, the disappointments, yeah. the mistakes. And, uh, you know, we've all had our fair share, but I think we can often forget that when, you know, the people that yeah. we see in a role, um, that is somewhere that we aspire to be, uh, it's sometimes very easy to look at someone and go, well, it must be so easy for them. Yeah. And look at them, you know, and precisely, um, uh, but I think, yeah, that's the thing. You know, I think everyone has, you know, I mean, look, the most famous kind of one of the most famous creative icons of our time, Steve Jobs, got fired from his own company. Right, exactly. And, you know, we all know what that did to him personally, and but it actually ended up making him invent what ended up be- becoming the true Apple company. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's you, you never know at the time, but I think if you have a kind of a level head about what happens in your career and 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 always have an, your eye on the, the the ultimate goal and and belief in yourself, then. Um, you know, everything ends up just making you better at what you do. Mm. Now, uh, who were your mentors when you started out? And can you share to us some advice that maybe stood out and really created impact? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was very lucky in that uh, as I was getting into the industry, you know, I was, um, I worked for some incredible people. Uh, you know, my first exposure to a global creative director was Bob Isherwood. Um, when I worked at Saatchi's in Sydney and, and Bob was, uh, to me, Bob was like, not only creative, you know, global creative director of Saatchi and Saatchi, he was like the creative director of the whole industry. You know, he was, he was a visionary that, you know, he invented the new director's showcase at Cannes and, you know, he did so much for the industry, um, that, you know, that I learned a lot from him about the greater responsibility of what we do. You know, it's not just, uh, to the to the people around you, it's to the to the, it is to the whole industry, and you have to try and leave it better than you found it. So Bob was fantastic, and then I spent uh, you know I I worked for uh, Ted Horton, who um, was 
fantastically and motivating. And he was probably one of the ones that really changed my approach to advertising. He really supported me uh, when I was a young uh, copywriter and taught me a lot about uh, human insight in and bringing human insight to the creative work that I do. And I think he he changed the kind of work that I was doing uh, and and made me better and uh, and and more authentic, I think, as a creative. And then really the person who kind of on a day-to-day taught me how to be a creative director was um, Tom McFarlane at MNC Saatchi. You know, Tom gave me my first job as a creative director uh, opening up MNC Saatchi in Melbourne. And, you know, there was no doubt I had, you know, I, I, I had passion and belief and desire to be a creative director, but I'd never done it. Uh, and he totally supported me um, and, and gave me the room to make decisions myself, make, make mistakes, um, supported me through it, showed me through example how, you know, how to do the job and, and taught me a lot of the basic things that it takes to be a creative director and was incredibly generous with his time and, you know, still to this day is someone that I speak to about, uh, you know, advice on things. Um, so, you know, I was blessed with a range of really great, great uh, people who invested their time in me as someone who they thought, okay, well, you know, maybe he'll be successful one day. So, um, but I did have, I did have one great piece of advice, which is not so much from a mentor, but from a book that I read uh, by Colin Powell. Mm. And he said in his book, um, this quote, which stuck with me forever, which was when put in charge, take charge, Mm. which is very much about like, don't sit back and wait for someone else to give you permission to do what you know needs to be done. When you're the boss, do it. You don't need other people's permission. So take charge. And that's been a kind of a mantra for me of like, you know what, no one else is going to tell you what to do. If you think this is the right thing to do, do it and, and make it happen. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that, that's a bit of advice, not from a mentor, but from someone who I admire as, as a leader. Yeah, no, that's really solid. I think, uh, I'm personally going to look up those, uh, those names you, you mentioned and, uh, wouldn't be surprised if the listeners do too. So that's, yeah. that's really cool. And I love that quote, actually. That's, uh, I've never heard of that one, but it's so simple almost. It's, it's so simple. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Now, um, can you describe the service JWT provides for clients, which is obviously the company that you're at now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we've actually, uh, spent a little bit of time kind of trying to define exactly that, you know, um, it's in, JWT is uh, you know a 150 year old company, which is incredible. We just had our 150th anniversary last year, so you know we probably are the, if not one of, we are the oldest uh, communications company in the world, which is amazing. So, um, so we kind of wrote our purpose uh, last year when myself and the new chief exec started, which is to create pioneering solutions that build enduring brands and business. Um, and that's kind of what we're about. And, and, and the, the sort of the, the words in there that I think really resonate for me are pioneering solutions. Um, you know, it's not about uh, ads as such. It's not, it, that's part of what we do. So it's not about 30 second TV spots. It's about solutions. And as a great example of that, you know, uh, we have worked with many of our clients for like, 50, 60, 70, uh, up to 100 years. So we've been working with Unilever for 107 years, for instance. Um, 
we worked with Kraft for a long time. And a great example of a pioneering solution is J. Walter Thompson invented the grilled cheese sandwich mm-hmm. as a way to sell more cheese for mm-hmm. Kraft. So that was the challenge, you know, and that's, that's not an ad. That's, that's a, that's a solution that, um, you know, I mean, the grilled cheese sandwich now is, uh, synonymous, uh, uh, is famous around the world. Um, so that's kind of what we try to do. I mean, another great example, I think, uh, is in the United States, we have a client, uh, who's one of the biggest, um, diamond, uh, suppliers, uh, in the, in the country or in the world, even, uh, De Beers. Um, and you know, they were looking for a way to obviously sell more diamonds. Um, and culturally what was happening at the time is that, uh, you know, this is about five years ago when, you know, women were, uh, waiting longer to get married and weren't getting married at 27 anymore, you know? Um, and so would like to find a way to wear diamonds without having to wait for an engagement ring, you know? So, uh, we invented, uh, the right hand ring which was a ring that a woman could wear on her other hand, not her engagement finger, uh, as a diamond ring, as a symbol of, you know what, I am special to myself and I'm going to wear this diamond. And so I love, you know, I love that kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and obviously then there's all the communications and advertising around those ideas, mm. but that's very much the approach we try to bring to business is to build solutions that uh, ultimately kind of build the brands and the business that we're working with. Yeah. Unreal. It's almost uh, finding that uh, intuitive disruption. Yeah, yeah. In, in pattern, uh, that's relevant. You know. Um, now, your involvement has touched some of the biggest and most iconic brands in the world, including yeah, that kind of rich uh, for the New York Lottery. I've I've personally seen that when I went to uh, visit New York uh, a couple of years back, and. Uh, the highly awarded hashtag killer campaign for water is life, uh, as well as working for, for clients uh, that include Hertz and McDonald's. What do you say is your most significant work to date? Is there a project that has really stood, stood out for you? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to sort of say the most because I think so many things have affected me in different ways. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, you talked about the New York lottery work that for me was one of the, most fantastic opportunities to take a brand that was pretty famous. You know, the Hey, You Never Know work um, has been around for 20 years and has won lots of awards. But I know when I took over at uh, DDB New York, um, you know, we hadn't actually won a lion uh, on lottery for maybe 17 years. So it had kind of like fallen away. And the, I, the campaign I thought was great, but it just needed a re-injection. So, you know, we came up with that, the new, the new positioning, which was, yeah, that kind of rich. Um, and then we just won line after line after line with this new work. And it was, it was great to see something that was sort of almost just needed polishing up and was, I thought it was already in there, but we just needed to find a new way of talking about it. So that was, it was like being handed the keys to like a really amazing car um, and just needed a tune up. So, uh, you know, I loved that. And, and for me, you know, when I got into advertising, the work for the New York lottery was famous already from seeing it in the one show and everything. So I loved, loved doing that. Um, but then I, you know, from a personal kind of, uh, uh, I guess, standpoint, I, I loved working with water is life and the hashtag killer campaign was a campaign that we, you know, we did really well with and was highly awarded, but 
you know, it was also one of a series of campaigns over three years that I worked with them that ultimately kind of turned their donations around, you know, increased their donations by over 500%, you know. Uh, and uh, I remember when um, uh, working with them, when you when you see the people whose lives you're changing, you know, you we, we did a campaign the following year after the hashtag killer uh, called um, Kenya Bucket List, which was with a little boy in Kenya uh, who we found the statistic that uh, 20% of children under the age of five die from waterborne diseases in Africa. Um, so, you know, there was a one in five chance that this little five-year-old boy might be dead, in a, you know, by the end of the year. So we we sort of, as a demonstration of that, we said we took him to live his, live his bucket list, you know, go and do all the things that you want to do in your life in case you don't make it to the end of the year. Um, and this was a real kid and it was, you know, so it was incredibly, the, 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 the campaign was incredibly uplifting because he went in a hot air balloon. He went, uh, he, he'd never seen the ocean, so he went to the ocean He'd never ridden. He wanted to ride in a go-kart, so he moved to the, you know, the same dreams as any five-year-old kid. So, you know, it was seeing him do all these incredible things was incredibly uplifting, but knowing in your heart that he could be dead because mm. he doesn't have safe water to drink um, was amazing. And, you know, we so we, we worked with him. We made the film. The huge amount of donations came in as a result of that. And he got a well uh, built in his town. He's, he's a uh, Maasai, yeah, junior Maasai warrior. And he got a, a well built in his village through the funding that we helped raise. And we went back a year later and filmed them building the well and, uh, and seeing the fresh water come out. And it was just, you know, overwhelming because this is, you know, this, this was a, a kid's life that ultimately had been saved through the creative work that we'd done and the way we told his story. And um, so that, that, that whole experience was probably yeah. one of the most profound for me. Um, and, and it was interesting about a year later, every young Maasai warrior, if you ever see them on film, you'll see they, they have a stick uh, which they use to um, shepherd the animals around and, and keep them in, in a flock so that they're protected from lions. And, you know, if they see a lion in the distance, they use the stick to kind of move the animals on. And he sent me from Kenya, he sent me his stick to say, and said, thank you. Wow. for And I, and it was, it's the most, it, it is a, it is a stick that's kind of hand carved and, you know, it's nothing, it's probably worth nothing, but I know that it was one of the most valuable things he had. And he sent it to me and, you know, it was incredibly moving to get that from him and know that he, he called me Mr. Matt, you know, thank you, Mr. Matt, for what you did, you did to help. Um, and so, you know, that, that experience will be with me forever. And, and I still love doing that kind of thing. Yeah, I think yeah. it sounds like the stars aligned at some, at, in some ways, didn't it? It's yeah. like you get into this industry, you want to do creative work, you want to do cool stuff, but at the same time, you want to contribute, you want to make a difference. And uh, it sounds like that brief, um, that those projects really uh, kind of ticked all those boxes. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think that's, uh, that's one of the blessings I find is that, you know, we in the creative industries have these skills that not everyone has. 
And I think when you realize that actually I can use these skills and I can make the world a better place at the same time, mm. it's like it's like a, 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 an own goal. It's like, wow, this is amazing. You know, I've, I can do this and all I have to do is use my brain and I can help save a kid in a, in a Maasai village in Kenya. So, you know, it's a great, it's a great privilege what you do with the, you know, the creativity that we have at our disposal. Yeah. I think uh, even for me, you know, you, it's important that point that you just mentioned, because you know, why I'm doing this podcast and why I'm, uh, why I started the blog and, and why I wrote the book and why I'm doing so many speaking events at, at the end of it, it's, it's really just, Filling a need that you feel is lacking out of your own frustration, I guess, in a sense, scratching your own itch and, and really, okay, now how can I, I don't want to just say things are shit or not working out, <laughs> you know, how can yeah, I genuinely yeah. help others so that they potentially can fast track and accelerate their goals and, or, you know, or find that solution? How can I utilize my capacity at the moment? Um, to do that. I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, I think once you recognize that you almost have a responsibility because of the gift you've been given of creativity and, you know, you're like, it feels like you, you kind of, you have to do what you can to help spread that, that message and help people find their own creativity. Cause ultimately I think, you know, I mean, obviously we're a lot of what I do is, you know, we're selling products and things like that, but that's not all it is. And I think, you know, you can sell a product in a way that also makes the world a better place that makes, uh, you know, we, we, one of the big clients we work on here is the United States Marines, you know, and regardless of how people feel about, uh, you know, armies, et cetera. But, you know, we, we did a lot of work with the Marines to, um, open up that, uh, environment and make it better for women and you kind of go well that's that's helping make the whole planet a better place because if we have women on the front line in kind of defending uh you know our our, our country then that's going to bring a better mentality to the way we behave uh you know in the way we interact with other countries etc so you know yeah that's a selling thing because we had to try and recruit women but i think that behavior is, is changes the planet. So, um, you know, it's great. Yeah. Now, uh, shifting the needle a little bit, uh, you have mentioned a couple of different agencies, uh, that you've worked for and, uh, one in particular DDB, of course, prior to your, uh, uh, role there at JWT at the moment, you, you had about a seven year career with DDB. Uh, and while you're there, the agency has been named, uh, campaign brief agency of the year Australian Creative Hotshop, Ad News Agency of the Year, BNT Agency of the Year, all of these things. So, what what makes yeah the list goes on? But um, what makes a great agency? Do you think? Um, it's it's so interesting because I've I've spent a lot of my career um kind of working with in a way as a as a bit of a renovator, and I've I've often described. My, my myself my other passion is uh is architecture and design and so I, I quite often have done that classic buy the worst house in the best street you know buy something that's in a great location but needs a makeover um and that's sort of been my approach to working with agencies is is look for an opportunity where you can make a difference you know where you can renovate um and the thing i've found is that quite often uh agencies just need 
a bit of confidence and a bit of courage. And I think when you get those two things, uh, you almost become unstoppable. It's kind of confidence to believe that you can be uh, as successful as you want to be. And not everyone believes that because quite often, you know, people look back and go, well, you know, that's Droga 5. That's who they are. They're meant to be, you know, the creatively most successful in the world or whatever. But I've always, you know, I, I don't think there's any rule that says it's just them. It can be anyone. So I think having that confidence uh, that you can be who you want to be and then having the courage to go after it, uh, particularly when you're not there already, having the belief and the vision that um, you can achieve that goal, it definitely takes courage and it takes courage you know, I find it takes courage for people to follow me in that journey. You know, I, I, when I turn up somewhere, you've got to hire people and you're kind of going, well, I want you to come to this agency and it's not that great right now, but it's going to be great. Mm. And to find people who have the courage to do that and the belief uh, to do that is not always easy. So I think, you know, those, those two things ultimately make the difference. Yeah. Oh, I think you explained it really well. Um, now, more recently, uh, Ad, Ad Ages 2013 awards report, you, you've been listed as the fifth most awarded chief creative officer worldwide. Uh, and you've also been a judge for many prestigious industry award shows, including The One Show, Cannes, London International, ADC New York, um, and others. So what, what in your experience or in your opinion are the key ingredients to having work that wins awards? Um, I mean, I think that the big mistake people make is setting out to win awards. I think if you kind of follow trends in what wins awards, you kind of always end up a year behind yeah. <laughs> because when, well, when you see stuff and you go, oh, okay, this just came out in DNAD, you know, that's the kind of work I need to do. By the time you see it, it's already a year or 18 months old. Um, so I think not, not doing work designed to win awards is the best way to do it. Um, but, you know, I, I look for work that um, uh, has a strong human insight into it. And I think that, that when, when you genuinely, you know, I'm kind of an emotional person. Um, you know, I, I, I think I we all to, are in this industry yeah, to some degree. I, I think kind of recognising that people are emotional characters and if you can touch them, if you can touch them in a meaningful and human way and, and find an insight into the way they are or the way they behave and, and then sort of link that to what you're trying to, um, to the message you're trying to get across, then I think that's the work that ultimately uh, wins at award shows. You know, um, it's funny, a lot of people forget that judges and jurors at award shows are people too. You know, and so if you can touch those jurors in a way that motivates them and moves them, and um, you know, then then I think you'll be successful. It was it was interesting. You know, I remember when I talked to you about the Kenya bucket list work with the little five year old boy. Mm. I remember when we did that. You know, we 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 didn't do it for awards, but we wanted to enter it into awards. Um, and I remember thinking, is this just too emotional for like for for jurors to? Like, you know, emotion isn't all, like funny is popular and, mm. um, and cynical is popular. And, um, and I'm like, will jurors like this, you know, because it's very emotional. Um, and actually, as a, you know, we want a gold line, a can with it, because I think what happened is jurors responded as human beings and just like that is incredibly sad and motivating at the same time. And, 
um, and responded as if they were just regular consumers on the street. So, um, you know, I think going after stuff and looking for that genuine human connection is ultimately, I think, what leads to great work. And yeah. then, then the other sort of part of it is the, is the craft. You know, I think, I think making stuff beautiful and, uh, you know, you talked about the New York lottery before, you know, it was funny when you're in New York, uh, the posters for the New York lottery are everywhere on the streets and can't avoid them. So I, I, I really wanted to make sure that whatever we put out into the streets of New York made it more beautiful, not uglier. You know, I didn't want crass, ugly selling messages on the streets because I have to drive past 10 of them every day to the office. Exactly. So, you know, it was a real mission for me to put something beautiful out. And so we, you know, we did some absolutely stunning and beautiful typography and, uh, and beautiful illustrations and all sorts of things over the years that we worked with them that had the selling message, but ultimately, you know, brought a bit of beauty to the city as well. Mm. And, and I think that's what award shows recognize that it was, it had the human insight, but it was also beautifully crafted. Yeah. And for those of uh, you listening who are uh, wondering how that all looks like, it was, uh, there's a great video on the creation of the uh, typography, which was out of uh, US dollars. So there's a whole bunch of uh, different things online, posters and whatnot, but there's also a cool video on how they created that. So uh, I highly recommend you watch it. Um, now, we touched on a little bit about uh, your leadership role. Now, for those that are wanting to improve their leadership, have you got any do's and don'ts of advice? Um, yeah, look, I think, you know, it's definitely be prepared to, to, to fail. Like it's not going to be all perfect and don't worry that, um, that you will fail. I mean, uh, I, I think if you, as long as you learn from those failures and don't keep doing it, <laughs> um, but I think, you know, try things and particularly when you're a new leader and you're trying to find your, your way and, and your style, you know, I think trying different things. You know, I, I I read a lot, and I I read a lot about other leaders and things that they do. Um, so I think you know you've got to treat, you have to be as passionate about that role as a leader as you are about the creative work that you've generated in your career. So so put yourself into uh some, as in a position where you're learning new things, um, and I think uh you know sort of becoming a, a, a sort of an active participant in in recognizing behaviors that you like in other people and other leaders that you've had or don't like. So, you know, if, if you've had a boss that treated you badly or, you know, was rude to you or didn't, didn't motivate you to do great work, think about that and go, all right, well, I know what I, what motivates me and what makes me better at my job. And that's what I'm going to try and do for other people. So, you know, use, use the experience you've had in your own life um, to make you a better leader. Um, and then I think, you know, ultimately, uh, it goes back to that quote before of don't wait for someone else to make you a leader. You know, nobody can make people respect you. You have to become that. You have to just live, uh, that life, you know, live a purposeful life as a leader. Um, and then, you kind of become it and, and people start following you, not because you make them, but just because they want to. Yeah. There's a, it just reminded me of a quote um, that, uh, that was really stuck by me as well, which is don't, 
think your way into acting, act your way into thinking. So true. Yeah. yeah. And I think there is a, yeah, there is a physiological and psychological sort of uh, exchange in that decision of just yeah. living purposely. Uh, yeah, that's cool. I mean, I, I, I've been to a couple of conferences where I saw, um, uh, and one of them was, uh, I saw Scott Belsky speak, who is the founder of Behance. Um, and, uh, you know, he talked about, he basically just said, fake it till you make it, mm. you know, none of us are perfect, particularly when we're starting out as leaders and, you know, it doesn't, it's, you don't get any more perfect the more you do it. But if you behave in a way that you, uh, that, that sort of makes people believe that, then eventually you'll become that. And so I, I think that's exactly right of, you know, don't think that you know everything, but just keep doing it and then it'll eventually become who you are. Yeah. Now, here's a question that I'm not sure uh, uh, has been asked you before but, or if you've thought of, but w- would you ever own your own agency? Um, it's I- definitely been asked of me before and I've, I've been approached many times over my career to do it. Right. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting because I, I think what I realized my, my favorite role is being part of a global network of creativity. Mm. And I love, uh, you know, my, my most, my, my, most of my jobs have been, uh, you know, I'm now at JWT, you know, which is 200 offices. DDB was about the same. Uh, and MNC Saatchi was smaller, but I actually love being exposed to, that scale of creativity across the world. And I love the opportunity of working on a project in Japan or in Europe. And, and so I think every time someone has said to me, you know, what do you think about starting an agency? I kind of realized that I'd have to give that up, you know, at least for five years or maybe 10 years or something that I'd have to uh, start small. And I don't think I want to give up all of the things that I love about being part of a big company. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I look, and I definitely admire people who've who've done it, and and uh, and and I can see uh, the value in doing it, and I think I could do it well. But I think I think just from a creative point of view, the, you know, I would miss that connection to a bigger network. So that's probably why I've never done it in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Um, now you're obviously from Australia, but you've worked in London, in the UK, and now you're. Uh, in the in the United States, which you've been uh, in for how long have you now been in in I've been the US? here for nine years now. So nine years uh, in the states, yeah. yeah. Um, and you're based in New York, aren't I'm you? Based in yeah. New York, yeah. Now, how important is cultural diversity in the creative process? Would you say? Um, I mean, it's interesting. I think more and more, and and particularly in the role I'm in now, you know, J. Walter Thompson is uh, is a big agency that really specializes in global clients, you know, uh, like, you know, some of our biggest clients are, are things like Rolex, uh, and, um, KitKat. And, you know, these are global brands that are in every country around the world. And I think the real, the thing that, that the value I've been able to bring, um, is very much being a global citizen is, is understanding actually that, uh, it's different the way you market to people in Europe than it is in America, than it is in Australia, than it is in Asia. Um, so I think having that sort of diversity of experience behind you and having an op- having had an opportunity to live in different countries 
really brings value to the clients I now deal with on a day-to-day basis. And and I think, you know, a classic example for me was, um, you know, in the United States, and I think in a little bit, a little bit in Australia, the idea of like a super mum is, is, is something that, you know, women aspire to and they want to be able to do it all and they want to be able to, uh, uh, work work hard during the day and then come home and do a perfect load of washing and live. They want to be able to live that super mum life. But this the idea of a super mum in Europe is is a is almost like an insult. It's like you know they really hate that idea of like I don't I don't live my life for my family and you know uh, I care and I love them, but I'm not I I don't want to I don't want to be a super mum you know. Mm. And so it's interesting when you particularly when you end up you know marketing to women. Like understanding the difference between the way uh, a French woman uh, behaves to a woman from the Midwest and the United States, mm. uh, you know, you 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 have to be able to understand those nuances, and you can't do the same thing everywhere. So, um, you know, I found it uh, really valuable to me being that kind of global citizen uh, who's called many places home, and um, and now you know I I'm lucky in that I get to travel to uh you know everywhere and you know now i'm spending a lot of time in the middle east and and really beginning to spend time understanding that culture and it's Mm. fascinating yeah great um now gonna fire some questions here some practical questions uh to help uh, the listeners out um now how can someone applying for a creative job whether it be a design role art director role copywriter how how can they best get noticed? Um, I mean, it's it's interesting because you know I, I spend so much of my time looking at portfolios and uh, and getting uh, emails from people wanting work, uh, you know, wanting to come and work uh, for JWT. And I think it's it is very hard to stand out amongst you know all of those emails. And I say to people all the time. Uh, be creative, but be relevant. Like don't, you know, people send me stupid things all the time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, mailers and dumb emails and, and, the, and you know, I, I literally have had everything for, I've had people send me a foot because they want to get a foot in the door and, <laughs> and you kind of go, it's just lame. It's, it doesn't demonstrate that you're really clever and creative. Um, so I think, you know, if you want to get noticed, do something relevant. Um, you know, and I think uh, something that demonstrates if you if you want to say I'm a great copywriter, then do something that demonstrates that. Um, uh, or if I'm a great designer, then do something that demonstrates that. Um, so you know, uh, I, and I also think um, uh, one of the big things I say to people is if you want to come and work for me, you know. Do me the honor of finding out a little bit about me and what appeals to me and what I like. And and it's funny, I get a lot of uh, emails from people saying, "I really want to come and work in the United States in New York." I'm like, I don't give a damn what that you want to come and work in New York. Like, I'm not your travel agent trying to get you a, to live in New York. Right. What you want to do is write to me and say, "I really want to come and work for you." because of these three campaigns that you did that really touched me in a unique way and I love the way you communicate. Then I'm interested in, I, you know, it's so funny how people think that all I'm going to do is go, yeah, look, I'm just collecting up people who want to come and live in New York. It doesn't, you know, whatever. 
So I think actually understanding who you're talking to and 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 what is going to motivate them to to hire you is really important. And a lot of people forget that. Yeah, you um you almost answered the the second question here, which was about emailing uh, creative directors and writing to them. Uh, I think you pretty much covered it. I was just going to ask about writing tips that you can advise to to increase uh, those chances. Yeah, I mean definitely keep it short like uh, as much as it's um you know you really want to get yourself across and so the temptation is to write maybe a long email or something uh i mean look i i am so time poor it's ridiculous so if somebody can communicate in a simple and short succinct way um their strengths and and why i should interview them then that's so important and it even translates to portfolios you know it's uh i was actually just with someone before who asked me do i ever look at someone's entire portfolio Hmm. and actually the truth is i don't i don't have time um so i kind of i try to get uh, a sense of them by looking at maybe six things um and so understanding that you know making it possible for a busy creative director to get a good sense of you uh, or design director to get a good sense of you easily rather than having to make them wade through 28 pieces of work that they don't have time to look at is yeah. really important. Yeah, I think um, that, that actually even surprises me. You know, I, I've, I'd be thinking that your, your first three should be your crackers and, and, you know, the rest might not even be looked at. Uh, your, your first three projects um, yeah. when they yeah. click your, your portfolio link or whatever it is. So. Uh, no, that's good. I think that's the reality of it. And it really reaffirms a lot of the stuff that, uh, um, other creative directors on this podcast have said as well. And, um, and something that I've written in my book, uh, quite a fair bit about. So, uh, speaking of portfolios, have you, have you got any sort of quick portfolio tips that come to mind? Um, yeah, I mean, look, definitely, uh, I think to that idea is keep it simple. Don't, don't put too much in there, you know, and, and only put things in that you think are really, really strong. Um, one thing it's different from a, it's different. It is different, uh, a design portfolio versus a, uh, uh, maybe a, um, copywriting or art direction portfolio. Mm. Um, because, you know, a lot of people send me an advertising portfolio and it'll just be, uh, you know, a front page uh, on a website with maybe 12 pictures and that's it. You know, one will be a picture of a foot and one will be a picture of, you know, just something maybe an image from the campaign. And I I really hate having to um, work hard to find my way through a portfolio. Mm. So I, I think uh, if you can make it simple and instead of just having a picture, have tell me what the campaign is for. This is a campaign for Nike european launch of their new shoe this is the idea of the campaign and then makes me go okay i'd like to go and have a look at that Mm. but i think if you know if i just see 12 pictures on a page and i'm like oh i don't know i don't know where to start like i i I, because i know i don't have time to look at all 12 um so i think if you understand uh and make it simple for someone looking at your portfolio that uh you know they're looking for a simple way to find out as much about you as they can in a shorter time as possible. Mm. Um, then that, that, then that's a good rule for putting a site together. Yeah. Uh, you hit the nail on the head with the whole, uh, user experience. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Know, make it super easy. What's your intention? Uh, don't make them work hard for it at all. Uh, put it in context immediately. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's funny how many people don't 
spend the time to even describe themselves in a paragraph um, simply at the beginning of the website. You know, you've really got to kind of look hard and maybe they'll put a CV of where they've worked, but it doesn't really tell you who they are and what they're passionate about. Mm. So I think, you know, look, it's difficult to write about yourself and potentially sometimes you can get someone else to do it on your behalf. But really making it simple and summing up your ambitions and your um, strengths, you know, in the way you describe yourself is so useful when you're looking at, you know, dozens and dozens of sites every day. Yeah, no, they're great tips. Uh, I'm going to skip to uh, networking now. Just a quick question about that. Have you got any uh, advice on how people can start building a circle uh, within the industry if if they have none at all or if they have a small sort of group? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I have found myself in my career because I've moved a lot. You know, I've lived uh, in multiple cities. Um, and so I've found myself quite often turning up to a brand new city where I really don't know anyone. I don't know the industry. And the kind of rule I set for myself is get involved. Mm-hmm. Like you can't expect to be part of the industry if you don't get involved in the industry you want to be in. Um, so which means, uh, you know, I remember when I moved to Melbourne, uh, I really, you know, the, the Melbourne Art Directors Club was a huge part of the culture of the industry there. And I'm like, okay, I should go and get on the committee of the Melbourne Art Directors Club. Um, and then eventually I ended up as president of the club. And so I, within minutes, I was hugely involved in the industry. I'd managed to meet everyone. Um, and, I, and I think that's the thing. If you get involved, if you go to the industry events, if you uh, read the industry blogs, if you become an active participant in it, then I think that's how you start networking and how you start meeting people. And, um, and, and actually don't be afraid to, uh, one of the things I always do when I, when I turn up to a new city is I often just decide the people I want to meet that live there. You know, Mm. uh, I remember when I moved to New York and that was good actually, because some people did it to me, but I did it to them. I would just write to other chief creative officers at other agencies and say, I'd love to have a coffee and get your take on, the industry and, and, you know, people are really willing to do that. So, um, you know, it, it, obviously if you're a junior designer, you can't write to the design director of Pentagram and expect him to see you, but you can write to somebody in Pentagram and say, Hey, you know, I've admired your work. I'd love to have a, buy you a coffee. So I think, you know, taking action is, is, and getting involved is key. Yeah. I think uh, you definitely have to start somewhere. So it's, a, it's almost, uh, you know, you take a side step before you take a forward step. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Now, a uh, few more questions now before we wind down. Uh, quick fire questions, actually. Uh, you've you've probably seen it all. So, how do you stay creatively motivated and inspired? Well, I I mean, I have seen a lot, and uh, but I constantly try to put new things in my head, and uh, you know, I'm I am blessed in that. Not only do I live in one of the best cities in the world, but I get to travel the world. You know, uh, right here in New York, there's always an amazing exhibition of on, or there's a cultural event, there's Broadway. So I try and go out a lot and see, you know, uh, there's a, a wonderful Matisse exhibition that just finished at the MoMA. So going to see new things all the time. And then, you know, I'm always in new cities and I'm always on, you know, I'm very often I'm on my own, you know, mm. I'm just traveling. Um, so I try and, go and eat somewhere interesting. I try and go and visit somewhere interesting, look at it, look at the sites. 
kind of get involved in it. And then I read a lot as well. I have a bunch of uh, blogs and things that I love that I kind of look at all the time for inspiration. So I think you just have to constantly feed um, your curiosity and, and, and that's how you stay fresh, I think. Yeah, participate in the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds, I ask uh, most of my uh, guests this, but uh, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds, speak to your younger self, uh, perhaps the 17, 18-year-old uh, Matt Eastwood, what would you say to him? God, <laughs> that is a big question. <laughs> um, I, I, think, uh, I think I would just say um, enjoy the journey. You know, I think mm. it's, it's going to happen and just uh, enjoy the process along the way. I think, if anything, sometimes I've been uh, impatient in my career and uh, and maybe not enjoyed the moment as much as I could. Um, you know, I definitely moved away from home when I was pretty young. Originally, I, you know, when I first moved away and I moved back again, but I was 21 and I think that was too young to move away. And I, uh, um, and so I, yeah, probably just enjoy the journey along the way. Cool. Yeah. I was going to say it, it, um, do you have any regrets, um, with the demands of your job and, and, or, you know, the journey, how that, where that's taken you, um, there would have been many sacrifices. Is there anything that you kind of go, Ooh, you know, could have did that better or? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think I'm, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I have a life now that I, you know, really love living and I, you know, I got married last year, which was great. I wish I'd done that Fantastic. years before, but Congratulations. Um, you know, that's, thank you. <laughs> um, and that's great. So it's, you know, it's great to have a supportive partner and it's, uh, um, you know, I think, uh, yeah, no, no big regrets. I mean, it's, I think I've kind of got everything I've hoped for, um, yeah. and I'm really enjoying doing it. You know, it, you know, definitely it is busy, and and as I said, I think you know you're always on because the world is always waking up somewhere, and mm. you there's a problem to solve or a, something to work on. But but I I enjoy that, and I enjoy the different experiences, and 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 luckily I'm. Um, not too old yet that I have the energy to do it. So maybe yeah. when I'm like in my fifties and I'm like, don't have any energy anymore, I'll be like, Oh, that's enough of that. But for now I love it. Unreal. So uh, what's next for you, Matt? Is there anything we should look out for? Um, what's coming up? I'm, I'm giving a speech in can. That'll be fun. Oh, so very good. Uh, yeah, I have a, I'm doing a speech with uh, a quite a famous Hollywood uh, producer who's done a lot of movies that we all know and love. I'm, just, I'm not saying it yet because we're just uh, finalising everything. Under wraps, but, uh, yeah. That's going to be fun. And I, I did see today that I'm sandwiched between Sarah Coning, who did uh, Serial, and Al Gore. So oh, wow. that's my speech. In the middle. And I'm like, that's pretty good to be on either side, have them on either side of me. So uh, that's brilliant. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be lots of fun. When When's that exactly? This so might, that's on yeah. the Friday. I think it's about... I think it's 5.30 on, fr on the Friday night of Cannes. Right. Okay. Fantastic. Um, and last question here, if listeners want to get in touch with you online or social media or, or anything like that, where can they yep. uh, reach you? Uh, yeah. I mean, my, my Twitter handle is at Matt in New York, um, all spelt out. Um, and I'm Matt Eastwood on LinkedIn. So anyone can find me there and I'm ha always uh, happy to say hello to new people. Um, and that's probably the best way, I think. Yeah, cool. Cool. 
thank you so much for joining us. I know uh, you're probably off to another meeting or flight or presentation. So I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. It's great fun talking. Thank you so much, Matt. I appreciate it. Bye. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and listening to this episode with Matt. I highly recommend you send him a tweet on his handle, Matt in New York, all spelled out just as he mentioned. I'm sure he'd be delighted to hear from your thoughts. Of course, I would be too. On Twitter, my handle is TheGiantThinker. And next up on the podcast that's going to be up in a couple of weeks, I have a very unique guest. He's actually a physical education teacher that has leveraged emerging technologies to shape new age teaching. He's created over 60 mobile apps, yep, six zero, and has won numerous awards worldwide. He's even presented internationally, running workshops in over 30 countries for the last six years. I have no doubt he's going to rock your socks off. So make sure you subscribe to the giantthinkers.com mailing list. And of course, subscribe on iTunes. It would mean a lot to me if you could share this uh, with even just one person who you think would find this podcast valuable. And until next time, work hard, do what makes your heart sing and never stop hustling. 